Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do uh, welcome you here uh, at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland in South Calgary and also in the Crowfoot Northwest Calgary. And we'd also like to uh, extend a special welcome uh, to our partner church in Richmond, B.C., who are uh, joining us online today as well. I understand that Pastor Wayne Smeal is there visiting with you right now, which is great. I'm I'm sure that you'll really grow to appreciate him as we have over time. Um, (laughs) No, seriously, we really do look up to him. Actually, he's six foot six, so we have no choice but to look up to him. Um, But just one word of caution that we got from our South Campus about Wayne, and that is apparently he gets quite emotionally when he speaks, and when that happens, he spits a lot. So um, you may want to give everyone in the front row umbrellas um, when you have him speak. Anyways, in all seriousness, though, I'm excited about our partnership with you as a church and uh, that eight of our families, I understand, uh, from Center Street are coming out in July to serve alongside of you uh, in reaching your community for Christ. And so may God bless you as you continue to reach out to the people there in Richmond as a church. Can we just give them a Center Street uh, welcome? Now, you may have wondered uh, where we were the last couple of weeks. Uh, Probably not, but just in case you were. um, My wife and I, uh, Gwen, were away celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary. However, we, we did do it a year early. Um, because next year we're planning to, as usual, take a, uh, a tour um, to the Holy Land again. And so we thought we'd do it this year. Anyways, just to let you know, we had a wonderful time. Um, you know, when I think of wedding anniversaries, uh, I'm reminded of the fellow who said, you know, for 30 years, my wife and I were deliriously happy. Then we met. <laughs> well, thankfully, that is not our story. Uh, we've had a blast We're still having a blast. We're looking forward to many more years of loving each other and serving the Lord together. Uh, And speaking of love, while we were um, away, our ninth grandchild came into the world, uh, a boy. And uh, he shall be called uh, Zayden Joshua Henry Shore, uh, born to our son Joshua and his dear wife Amanda. Now, I have to tell you, this boy could be the poster child for contentment. I mean, this is what he looks like. <laughs> this is what he looks like after um, a feeding time. I mean, uh, that is what I call the look of contentment. Uh, so, so there you are. We're all up to date. Um, we're in a series in which we're looking at what it is that Christians believe. And presently, we're examining what the Bible teaches about prayer power and the importance of prayer. Now, in this message, I want to explore what the Bible teaches about how to pray effectively. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that verse tells me that there are prayers that are more effective and more powerful than others. And there are barriers 
that can make our prayers totally ineffective. And so that's going to be the focus today. But before we get into it, will you stand with me and let's just dedicate our time um, in the word to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for just the wealth of wisdom we find within it, Lord. Not only in terms of how we can uh, be in relationship with you, but how we can uh, grow and, and access, Lord, uh, the power, um, the gifts that's available to us through you. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us today about some of the reasons why you don't hear our prayers. Show us what that means, Lord. Open our hearts. Focus our minds. And Lord, give us the will to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It happens on a fairly regular basis. Someone will say, Pastor, you say that prayer changes things. You quote Jesus as saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You talk about God being a loving and gracious God who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And yet I've been praying for a job for over a year and I just keep getting one door after another slammed in my face. Or I've been praying for a breakthrough in my business or in my ministry for years now and nothing's ever changed. Or I've been praying for my wife's health and she isn't getting any better. I don't get it. Is he really there? Does he really care? Or is the problem with me? It's a question that's been asked down through the ages. Why are some prayers answered? And why do others seem to get, never get past the ceiling? There is no quick or easy answer to that question. Recently, a dear friend of ours, Digi Nawalski, passed away after a 13-year battle with kidney disease. We prayed fervently. We prayed persistently for her during those years for healing. And yet God chose to call her home. Over the last 35 years, as some of you know, I've had two bouts with cancer. And like did you, I too have been prayed for. And I can't explain to you why I'm still alive and why others like did you are no longer with us. I can't explain why some people live to be well over 100 years and why others die in their teens or even before then. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul kind of expresses our frustration. He says we're perplexed because we do not know why things happen the way they do. And Paul is saying here we must come to the realization that God is God and that we're not. That there is a great deal of mystery surrounding this issue of unanswered prayer. In short, there are aspects to prayer that we will never understand or figure out and that we just simply need to trust God in. On the other hand, the Bible does give us insight on how to pray more effectively 
and specifically spells out barriers to prayer that we can actually do something about. For example, in Psalm 66, King David, he is giving praise to God for answered prayer. I invite you to turn to Psalm 66 and just keep it open because we'll be referring to it a, a few times. I want you to look particularly at verse 16. David says this, Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Now in this psalm and in many others, David is quick to celebrate and give praise to God for answered prayer. Clearly, God does answer prayer. We see it in the scriptures. We, we, we hear about it in, in our daily walk. We've heard about it for years down through the years in our church. We read about it in countless books that are filled with testimonies of answered prayer. But in this passage, David says there are times when God won't even listen to our prayers. In fact, in verse 20, it indicates there are times that God flat out rejects our prayers. And we see that principle throughout Scripture. And so in this message, I want to talk about the reasons that God gives in the Scriptures for not listening to our prayers. Because as I've said, even though there is much about prayer that is a mystery and that we just simply need to trust God in, we can address the reasons that God gives for not listening to our prayers. The first barrier to effective prayer is self-sufficiency. The Apostle James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. We live in an age of hustle and bustle. An age of man's efforts and man's determination. An age of man's confidence in himself and in his power to achieve things. Many people turn to God only when they come to the end of their rope. They see prayer kind of like a spiritual fire extinguisher. Something you use only in emergencies. When things really hit the fan, well, then we pray like the pastor whose church was falling apart. He turned to one of his deacons and said, well, we've tried everything. All that's left now is to pray. The deacon looked back at him and said, oh no, pastor, has it come to that? Or like the sailor whose ship was sinking rapidly, he looked up at heaven and he said, Lord, I haven't bothered you in 10 years. If you'll save me from this, I promise I won't bother you again for another 10 years. Often that's the mindset we have in relation to prayer. We don't make the connection that prayer is about a relationship with God. Rather, so many people see it just as a last resort. And unfortunately, there are people who call themselves Christians who have a similar mindset. They know things about God, but they really don't know God. They may believe in God, but they really don't 
believe God. They don't take him seriously or build a relationship with him. He's only one part of their already overcrowded schedule. I mean, they take great comfort in having God a part of their life, hoping, of course, that if there is a crisis, you know, they may be able to hit him up for a favor. But their Christianity is pretty much limited to attending church. But even when they come to a worship service like this, they're, they're very time conscious. Their mind is often focused somewhere else. They roar into the parking lot. They race into the worship center. And then instead of calming their hearts and opening up their lives and giving thanks and praise to God and hearing from him, they count the minutes, wanting to get out of here as soon as possible so they can get back in the fast lane and do the things that really matter to them. They've come to depend so much on human wisdom, on their own self-sufficiency, that they rarely pray because they really don't see the need for prayer. I mean, why pray when you can worry? Why pray when I could just work harder to solve the problem that I have? And what's really sad about all of this is that people with this mindset not only do not grow in their relationship with God, but they never experience all that God wants to do in them, all that God wants to do for them, and all that God wants to do through them. They have not because they ask not. Because they're just not cultivating a friendship with God. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says this, And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This verse is saying that God doesn't just want us to believe that he exists. I mean, that's foundational. He wants us to earnestly seek him, to earnestly cultivate a friendship with him, to involve him in our day, to, to walk with him, to talk with him, to celebrate life with him, his goodness, his faithfulness, his creation, the wonder of his creation, and also to bring to him our needs, our concerns, our problems. Notice the writer of Hebrews says, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him like that. He blesses them. His favor rests upon them. And yes, he hears their prayers. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who don't believe in him. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who have a cold and cynical heart toward God. But neither does he hear the insincere last resort prayers of those who are proud and self-sufficient and are just going through the motions of their Christianity. He knows our hearts. Folks, God's power and his blessing will not be released in your life if you keep the Lord at a safe, comfortable distance. If you put your hands in your pockets and you say, you know, hey, I can handle this on my own. 
The antidote to self-sufficiency is not adding Christ as a part of your life. No, it is inviting Jesus into the center, the very core of who you are, everything you do, earnestly and humbly seeking him each day. And as you do, he will hear your prayers. And he will bless you. He will empower you to do more than you could ever do in your own strength. As someone said, for when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. The first barrier to effective prayer is self-sufficiency. A second barrier is idolatry. In Ezekiel chapter 14, some of the elders of Israel came and sat with the prophet Ezekiel. And while they were there, the Lord came to Ezekiel and he said this, A son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? God is speaking about the elders or the leaders of Israel here. And he says, as long as there's idolatry in their hearts, I will not listen to their prayers. So what is an idol? An idol is anything which takes the place of God and becomes the supreme object of our affection. Tim Keller says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is taking a good thing, like your career, for example, and making it the ultimate thing in your life, where being successful in your career not only defines you, but obsesses you. An idol can be your body image or how attractive you are. An idol is whatever you look at and you say, you know, if I had that, then my life would have meaning. If I had that, then I know I'd have value. Some people park their idols in their garage. Others build their idols near a lake and go and worship it on a regular basis. Some people put their idols in the bank. Others marry their idol or are obsessed with marrying their idol. Some make their children their idols. And some make having a good reputation or having other people admire them their idol. For still others, happiness or pleasure for the sake of pleasure is their idol. Now, even though we readily see idols in the lives of others, we often are blind to them in our own lives. I mean, while I was kind of going through that list of potential idols, how many of you are kind of sitting there, yeah, yeah, yeah so-and-so's got an issue there, and yeah, so-and-so, I hope you heard that, and, right? We see them in others, but we're, a lot of times we're blind to them in our own lives. So how can we identify idols in our lives? Well, the main way is to regularly read, study, and meditate on the scriptures. Or to hear the scriptures, and to hear the scriptures taught in services like this. Because as we do, the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to reveal the idols in our lives. 
We can also identify our idols by looking at what we daydream about. What, what kind of gets our adrenaline going? Another way is we can examine what's behind our fears, what's behind our insecurities, our perfectionism, our workaholism, our drivenness. See, we, we may not realize this, but idols, true idols in our lives, actually control us. Since we feel that we must have them to have meaning and fulfillment in life. And friends, make no mistake, whatever controls you, whatever consumes your thoughts, your passions, and your emotional energy, that is your God. Now, God isn't opposed to us enjoying the many good gifts that he's provided us in this life. He just insists that we hold them with an open hand. That we make him the object of our highest affection. He said, I'll have no other gods before me. He insists that we have no other gods before him. Not because he's an egomaniac who, 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 who needs our adoration. But because he knows if we look to the things that he created rather than to him to give us meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in life. Our hearts will be shattered one day because counterfeit gods will not deliver what they promise. For example, many athletes whose idol was to play at the Olympics or to get into the Hall of Fame they took steroids. They took other drugs in order to get there. And yet we know that in the end, their world fell apart. All they were hoping for was gone. And in the process, not only did they destroy their bodies, but they destroyed their reputation. Tim Keller tells a story of, of a woman that he knows who grew up in a poverty-stricken home. And as an adult, her idol was financial security. So much so that she passed over many good prospective relationships, guys that she really cared about, in order to marry a wealthy man that she really didn't love. And this led to an early divorce and all of the economic struggles that she feared so much. You see, friends, this is why God says, worship me and me alone. Put your trust in me and me alone. Because he knows that every counterfeit God that we put our trust in will ultimately disappoint us. It will turn to dust in our hands. If not, destroy us. And this is why the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart you put him at the center he'll do the rest what did Jesus say Jesus said seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things 
will be given to you as well. So if your prayers seem to be shooting blanks, it may very well be that you have an idol or two that you're putting ahead of God, and consequently, God's not hearing you. A third barrier to effective prayer is cherishing sin in your life. Again, in Psalm 66, David says, If I had cherished sin in my life, in my heart, rather, the Lord would not have listened. Now, I want you to notice that this verse does not say, if I had sin in my life. No. It says, if I had cherished sin in my life. Please note the difference. This is not a call to live a sinless life. Because Romans 3.23 says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In Christ, we have the increasing capacity to live in victory over sin. But in this life, we will always struggle with sin. So this is not an issue of living a sinless life. This issue is cherishing sin in our hearts. It's about holding on to sin. It's about not dealing with it. It's about not confessing it. David says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord won't listen to my prayers. One of our pastors recently shared that someone said to him, you know, I I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know it's a sin. But I just can't give it up, and I don't intend to give it up. I'm just going to take my chances on Judgment Day. That person's not only disrespecting the holiness of God, but that person is cherishing, by cherishing sin in his heart, his relationship with God is just going to be troublesome. God's just not going to listen to his prayers. His or her. Pastor Francis Chan tells of a time a young man asked him if he would pray for healing. The young man claimed to be a Christian. And so Chan quoted James 5 where it says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you can be healed. And then Chan said, So is there anything that you need to confess to the Lord before we pray. And the young man said, well, um, there's this little business thing, but, you know, I I think I've kind of taken care of that. And, yeah, there's this other thing, but, yeah, you know, I I think I fixed that too. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I've confessed everything. And then just right before Francis was about to pray, the young man said, ah, well, there is one other thing. I'm living with this girl. And Chan said, now let me understand this. You claim to be a Christian and she claims to be a Christian. And you guys are sleeping together? He went on to say, let me ask you something. If you were sleeping with my daughter out of wedlock, would you have the nerve to come up to me face to face and ask me for a favor? The young guy said, man, I hadn't thought of it that way. And Chan said, 
you're with a daughter of God. And now you're going to approach him and ask him for a favor and you want me to be part of this. No, he said, you need to come clean on this. You, you need to repent. God's an awesome God. He's an awesome forgiving God and he'll forgive you if you come to him sincerely. But God's not going to listen to our prayers until you do. James 4.3 says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. On your pleasures. You see, what that verse says is you don't get what you're asking for because it's all about you. It's all about your pleasures. It's not about your needs. It's about your pleasures. Dr. Ray Stedman he says, if we really expose the true motives behind our requests, some of our prayers would sound like this. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my way at all costs. So be a good God, move off your throne, and let me take over. If you don't like this, well, then all I ask is that you bite your lip and, and say or do nothing that will spoil my plans and let me enjoy myself. Now, while no one would pray such a blatantly selfish prayer, some of our prayers, if we really analyze them, are a little different because they're really all about our pleasures and they totally ignore the majesty and the holiness of our God. It's like we want to be at the center of the universe and we just want God to kind of move aside and serve us. So let me ask you, is there sin in your life, perhaps a secret sin, that you're cherishing, that you're refusing to deal with? It's going to hinder your prayer life. It's going to affect your relationship with God. Again, I want to emphasize that we're not talking perfection here. We're talking the direction of your heart. Yes, there may be weaknesses that you have to confess again and again, even as I have to confess again and again. But if your heart is tender and humble, and the direction of your heart is toward God, to honor Him, if it's toward repentance, then you can be assured that God will hear you. Because even though God resists the proud, he extends grace to the humble. But be careful here, friends. Oh, be careful. Because you see, we have an amazing capacity as human beings to rationalize sin and to avoid dealing with sin. We, we need to come to a place of deep conviction that habitual sin is not only destructive, but it's going to prevent us from being all that God wants us to be and from experiencing all the amazing faith adventures that he has ordained for us. A fourth barrier to effective prayer is disobedience in our lives. Over in 1 John in chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God 
and receive from him anything we ask because we keep the commands, his commands and do what pleases him. In this verse, the Apostle John says, God hears our prayer. Why? Because we obey his commands and we do what pleases him. We please God when we give him our best. In Malachi chapter 1, God spoke through the prophet Malachi about how his people were not giving their best to him. Despite God's clear instructions to offer only the best sacrifices to the Lord, the Israelites were, were taking their prized animals to the marketplace in order to get top dollar for them, and they were kind of looking for the diseased and, and the half-dead animals in their flock, and those are the ones they, they offered to the Lord. And if you read Malachi chapter 1, God essentially says, as long as you cheat me, as long as you mock me with your half-hearted obedience, I will not hear your prayers. And church, in the same way, we are insulting God when we give him only the leftovers of our time, the leftovers of the talent he's given to us or the leftovers of our pocket change. When we invest our time and resources primarily in selfish pursuits, when, when we pursue the temporary idols, the counterfeit gods that we talked about a moment ago, he is grieved and he will not hear our prayers. Are we giving our best to God? We please God when we give him our best. We please him when, when, when we give his kingdom, his church, our best, when we together care for the poor. Proverbs 21, verse 13, we read, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. We need to understand that Jesus is passionate about developing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is passionate about his people reflecting his character. People who have a deep compassion for the lost and are concerned about the less fortunate. When we are generous toward God's work, when we together as a church fight against injustice, care for the poor, the orphaned, the widow, God will hear our prayers and he will bless us in return. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If we find that our prayer is hitting the ceiling, may very well be because we're not obedient to our Lord. We're not doing what pleases Him. And then finally, a fifth barrier to effective prayer that we see in the Scriptures is mistreatment of others. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we read this. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life 
so that nothing, nothing will hinder your prayers. And Peter, what Peter's saying here is the prayers of husbands, and we can add here the prayers of wives, will be greatly hindered if we mistreat our spouse. If we grow slack in loving them and meeting their needs, as the scriptures call us to. I believe the same principle applies in all relationships with members of our families, our boss, our employees, our fellow students, our friends, our fellow church members, our neighbors. God wants us to treat each other with respect. He wants us to be considerate and sensitive to one another, to be patient, to bear with each other, to forgive and to be gracious to one another. This principle applies right across the board. If, if we're mistreating others, if we're refusing to extend grace to others, if, if we're uh, refusing to forgive others, in short, if, if things aren't right between us and others, then things aren't right between us and God. However, both the Apostle Peter and Paul, they focus specifically on marriage because healthy homes are so crucial to a healthy society. And in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. If you're carrying a grudge or resentment toward your spouse, if you're speaking disrespectfully to or about your spouse to others, if you're avoiding each other, hurting each other repeatedly, if you're dishonoring each other, if you're being insensitive to each other, or you're depriving each other sexually, then don't throw your hands up in the air and say, God, why aren't you answering our prayers? You know, Dr. Doug Weiss, in his book, Marital Intimacy, he says he is convinced that one of the reasons that God's power isn't more evident in our lives, our homes, and our churches, and our communities is because far too many husbands and wives have this deep-seated resentment toward each other and often express their anger in destructive ways. He says wives will often deal with their disappointment and anger by depriving their husbands of intimacy and they pour their passion into their children or into other endeavors. Husbands, on the other hand, will deal with their frustration and their resentment by pouring themselves into their work, fantasizing about or flirting with other women, and or in a number of cases, in a growing number of cases, viewing pornography. All that accomplishes, however, says Weiss, is it makes them feel more guilty and causes them to treat their spouse even more poorly. He says he's convinced that that's why so many men find it so hard to reach out and to love their wives. Why they resist growing spiritually. Why they resist living all out for God. Because they feel bound up with guilt, like total failures, like total hypocrites, and therefore they feel unworthy to love their wives. They feel unworthy to pray. They feel unworthy to serve in the church. And you see, this is why the scriptures specifically address this marriage issue. 
Guys, some of you need to stop listening to Satan the way we talked about a few weeks ago. The lies, the deceit of Satan. And you need to come clean with the Lord and your spouse. And despite those feelings and accusations of feeling unworthy or feeling like you're a failure, repenting of all of that, putting that behind you, You need to start loving your wife the way that God calls you to love her. Some of you need to humble yourself and start communicating your love and your affection for your spouse in both romantic and practical ways and begin to serve her and to help her care for and serve your family. Some of you need to stop comparing your wife with the swimsuit models. You need to repent of your flirting and your mental adultery and start loving your wife and treating your wife as a whole person, a daughter of the King of Kings, made in the image of God. Some of you need to say no to pornography. You need to invest that romantic and sexual energy back into your marriage the way that it should be. Wives, some of you need to repent of your disappointment and your resentment towards your husband for not being the perfect knight in shining armor that you always dreamed your husband would be. And you need to start accepting him and loving him for who he is. I'm not saying that you should accept abuse. I'm not saying that you shouldn't desire to see your husband's character reflect the character of Christ. But that just isn't going to happen unless you stop trying to conform him your husband into the idea of what you think a perfect husband should be. Some of you need to die to the Cinderella complex and face the reality that your husband will will never meet all of your needs and that God never intended him to meet all of your needs. No. No. The Bible tells me that God himself has promised to meet all of your needs. And he will do that primarily through the Holy Spirit and through his body, the church. Not solely through your husband. Some of you wives need to stop punishing your husbands for not living up to all of your standards by depriving them sexually. And to begin to accept them, communicate admiration for them. And have fun with them the way you did it first. Remember that? Go way back the way it was at first. Yeah. All that to say, if I'm describing your marriage in whole or in part, then don't wonder why you're not growing spiritually as a couple. Don't wonder why you're just going through the motions as a family or why your prayers seem to be hitting the ceiling. You know, Philip Yancey, in his book on prayer, he talks about the amazing miracles that are happening uh, in places like Asia and other parts of the world. And, And as I thought about that, I was reminded of the many times that people have basically asked me a question. In fact, someone asked me the question just this last week. Why is it that we hear about so many miracles around the world except, or at least in much greater proportion than to what we hear here in Canada or in North America. 
Well, I don't have an answer to that. I, you know, I can speculate like we all can. But I really don't have an answer. What I do know is that God is sovereign. And that in all things, we can trust him to work for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, Romans chapter 8. What I do know is the prayer of a righteous person is incredibly powerful and effective. And by implication, what I know is that if there is self-sufficiency and unbelief in my heart, if there is an idol or a counterfeit God in my life that is the object of my highest affection, if there is sin in my life that I'm cherishing, that I'm holding on to and refusing to deal with, if I'm investing the best of my time and my resources in a temporary counterfeit God rather than the eternal true God, if I'm disengaged from the mission of the church and closing my ears and my eyes to injustice and the plight of the poor, if I'm mistreating my spouse or others that God has put into my life, then all of my praying, all of my pleading, no matter how fervent, no matter how long, no matter how persistent, will not be listened to by God. And how truly tragic that is. The good news is, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do something about this if we'll humble ourselves before God. And we do what he calls us to do. Would you stand for closing prayer? Would you just open your hands again before the Lord? And just whisper to him right now, Lord... What are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? I'm wondering how many of you desperately need an answer to prayer. You need God's direction in your life, perhaps his provision, his protection perhaps. Or maybe you have a work-related need or a marriage need or a family need or a health-related need. How many of you would just put your hand up for a second and say, yeah, I desperately need an answer to prayer? How many of you would say that right now? Yeah, all over the church. Now, there may be a reason that God hasn't answered yet that is a mystery and that only he knows about. However, I'm wondering if the finger of God pointed at something in your life from the message today that you need to repent of, that you need to acknowledge, turn around and go the other way. Something that may very well be the reason why the answer to your prayer hasn't come.
whatever it is, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, just respond to him right now. I just want to remind you, the altar is open. Some of you will want to come up here to the altar and have time with him alone. You come and just spend some time with him. Let's just spend some time now seeking the Lord's heart. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for your amazing love and your amazing grace. Lord, where would we be without the grace that you extended to us through Calvary? Thank you for the reminder today that you are also a holy God. And you take sin seriously. You take sin seriously because, Lord, you know how destructive it is. And you love us too much, Lord, to leave us there. Lord, I pray today we will understand your true heart. And I want to just pray, for Lord, for those who have just responded to whatever your Holy Spirit laid on their heart. Lord, that you'll bless them for their honesty, for their deep desire, Lord, to remove the barriers that would get in the way, Lord, of them having that friendship with you. Bless them for that, I pray. I pray for our entire church. that we individually and collectively, Lord, would be people of prayer, would be people who would seek to live in victory and holiness before you. We love you, Lord. We give our lives anew to you today. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.